reading is the Gospel according to Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12, using that blue Bible, it's page 871. Luke chapter 12, picking up at verse 13, Jesus is in a crowd, as he was often in a crowd, teaching. And so there's some interaction and some back and forthness going on, and you'll see that here. Luke 12, beginning at verse 13. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Now, I have to take a side note. That sounds so real and human, you know what I mean? Family and money and bickering. Okay, yeah, there we go. Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or an arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully, and he thought to himself, What shall I do, for I have nowhere to store my crops? And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods, and I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. And now we turn to Malachi chapter 3, picking up at verse 6 as we continue our series through Malachi. Malachi 3 verse 6, it should be page 802 in that blue Bible. And do keep your Bibles open so you can follow along with me. We're continuing our series, Uninvited, through Malachi. That's the name of the series, Uninvited. We're picking up right where we left off, verse 6. For I, the Lord, I, Yahweh, do not change. Therefore, you, O Jacob, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says Yahweh of hosts. But you say... How shall we return? Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says Yahweh of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need, I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soul and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says Yahweh of hosts. Then all the nations will call you blessed for you will be a land of delight, says Yahweh of hosts. What I read to you from the Gospel according to Luke and from Malachi is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. O Lord God, with whom there is no variation or shadow of due to change, and from whom comes every good gift and every perfect gift, give us the fullness of your Spirit this day that we may enjoy the fullness of your word for Christ's sake. Amen. You may be seated. So the sermon notes are on the back of the worship guide. 
There's also a prayer, but don't look at the prayer, but it's a prayer that I wrote that we'll look at at the very, very end. And then, of course, there's questions there for you as well. One of the questions I'm, it's not a question, it's a task I'm tasking the kids with, is to memorize the first and the last verse of, O come thou long expected Jesus, the way we have it in our hymn book, the first and the last verse. And so you will notice to help them and to help us, we will be singing that hymn every closing, it'll be the closing song every Sunday up into Christmas, okay? So that all of us can pick it up because it's a great prayer. That Charles Wesley, he could do a thing or two right on occasion, you know? That was a great prayer. Well, not long ago, we read a book for the uh, men. The men read a book. We had a whole Saturday morning uh, breakfast and book discussion, and uh, I reviewed the book. I quoted it during the Ecclesiastes series. It's called 40 Day, uh, 4040 Vision. And so Peter Greer and Greg Lafferty, in this book, 4040 Vision, Clarifying Your Mission in Midlife, diagnose a distinctly American problem. They put it this way, quote, Our formula for living looks something like this. Stuff plus more stuff plus even more stuff equals extraordinary happiness. If that were true, they go on to say, Americans would be the happiest people on earth. But we aren't. We're not even in the top 10 according to the World Happiness Report 2013. But we are, however, the world leader in antidepressants, making up two-thirds of the global market, end of quotation. Wow. Well, my friends, here in Malachi, our American idol stuff plus more stuff plus even more stuff must equal extraordinary happiness. Our American idol is uncovered as we see the populace's tight-fistedness confronted by God's test. So that's the theme of this passage, but I'm going to actually approach it in a different way. I have three points, and it's a play on the word change. And you'll see that as we go along. So the first, of course, is no change. And it's the very beginning of verse uh, verse 6 and all the way to the beginning of verse 7. For I, Yahweh, do not change. Therefore, children of Jacob, you are not consumed. Now that statement just should shock you. I mean, given all that has been said already about the people's profanity and their infidelity, all that's already been said in Malachi up to this point about their indifferent dismissiveness and their impious derisiveness, how they often sound like Alanis Morissette in her song, when she said, but you, you're not allowed, you're uninvited, an unfortunate slight. Then suddenly comes God's statement as a sheer surprise and a super shocker. For I, Yahweh, do not change, therefore you, O Jacob, are not consumed. And given the fact that they will continue to be curt and condescending toward God for a bit longer, all the way through verse 15, then God's statement comes also as a bulldogging stubbornness. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, O Jacob, O children of Jacob, you are not consumed. As I've been saying all along, 
because I've said all along, is that the aquifer under the surface of Malachi, the aquifer, you know, an aquifer is a water reservoir that you can't see. It sometimes covers multiple states underground. The only way you actually see it is when it comes out in springs or if you have a well into it. The aquifer under the surface of this whole oracle of Malachi is chapter 1, verse 2. But I have loved you. That's been the aquifer underneath this whole thing. And here it breaks out in a spring in verse 36. And so I, Yahweh, do not change. This explains for us why God is putting up with these obstinate, obdurate people. I have loved you. I do not change. I don't know if that's great news. I have loved you. I do not change. So notice that God's love is not topsy-turvy. His love is not hot, then cold. His love is not here, then gone. I, the Lord, do not change. And God's rationale here, then, is this. That's why you're still here. That's why I'm still talking to you. That's why I put up with your nonsense and your impudence. I, the Lord, do not change. But that unchanging love then means that it doesn't change. Because he loves his people deeply, he also loves them decisively. Which means he will consistently continue to push, pursue, persuade, and prod them from the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says Yahweh of hosts. That's because of his undying, unceasing love that that door is always open. Return to me, and I will return to you. That invitation is all over Scripture, from the Old Testament to the New. In Isaiah 55, Return to the Lord and he will have mercy on you and to your God for he will have compassion upon you. James 4, submit to God, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. That invitation is open and it's all because of love. I have loved you. I have not changed. I do not change. In fact, my friends, this last week I was speaking at the capital, state capital of the Bible study. I do that We. There's a Bible study. If you didn't know this, there's a Bible study there once a, month, uh, once a week. And several of us go in at a different week. Wes goes in on the third week. I usually go in on the fourth week. And we speak to the, these folks that come. And I've been doing the seven churches of Revelation. And this last Wednesday, I finished up with the church at Laodicea in chapter 3. And it is very striking that that church that receives no praise from Jesus because it is a Christless church. Just go read it. There ain't no Jesus in that church. In fact, the picture is Jesus is outside that church knocking on the door saying, let me in. But it's intriguing because Jesus says these words and it sounds just like the God of Malachi chapter 1, 2, and 3 because it is the God of Malachi. Jesus said, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Those I love, I reprove and discipline. Now, this is an easy target. You know that if you've ever been a parent, right? You love your kids, you discipline them. 
You don't discipline because you're a mean, ugly ogre. That, you just leave that to me. I'm the mean, ugly ogre, right? No, I'm just joking. But you discipline them because you love them. And when you're taking care of your aging parent whose cognitive capacities have begun to slip and diminish and they're beginning to do things they ought not to do, what do you do? You love them. And so sometimes with all due respect and honoring your parents, you still have to reprove them. No, mama, you know better. We don't talk that way. You taught me better than that. Why do you do that? Do you hate them? Say no. It's because you love them. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. That's what you see going on here in Malachi chapter 3. I have loved you, I, Yahweh, do not change. No change. And so with God, there is no change. And now he prods his tight-fisted people to give change. To give change. It's the rest of verse 7 down through verse 10. Now clearly, the change that God wants his, from his people is for them to give the change of heart and hand and whole life, right? To give change. Heart, hand, whole life. It's to change. So what he says in verse 7, from the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says Yahweh of hosts. But once again, and it's becoming so common, it's almost mind-numbing, once again... They throw out their hand and turn their faces away, saying, but you, you're not allowed, you're uninvited. Oh, an unfortunate slight. Notice what they say in verse 7. What is their response? How shall we return? Hello? All of Malachi up to this point has been saying, here's the way, the way is open, here's how you come back to me. And now in chapter 3, they go, how shall we return? And this whole oracle is about heart and head and whole life change. And they seem to have heard none of it. It's like the parishioner I had once, not here, by the way, in another state. He had spent about nine years in a federal penitentiary because of a crime that made it, therefore, impossible for him to either live or work around children. Let the hearer understand. And he comes to where we were, the town where I, was, I had this church, and we realized he could not get a job very easily, and so we helped him to get a job. And he got a job, he got a safe job, he got a paying job, we got him a job. And so he sat down with my, the ruling elder that was with me and I, and we were talking to him, and we're trying to explain to him there's a problem. And the problem is, is that he is critical, he's hugely critical of his boss all the time. Gripe, 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 gripe. We explained to him that his negative and surprisingly haughty, I'll never forget this, his surprisingly haughty attitude, well, I know better than the boss who's been doing this job for decades. Dude, you just got out of prison. You did a heinous crime, you just got out of prison, is there no gratitude? I know more than he does. That's haughtiness. That was his attitude, I couldn't believe it. It never, never left my head. So we explained to him that his negative, surprisingly haughty attitude was about to get him fired. And who was he to be critical of his, of his boss? And what he would do is as he sat there in front of us, he would just look at us, but it became clearly obvious, as the old saying used to be, the lights were on, but weren't nobody home. Because he would go right back into 
being negative and haughty and criticizing his boss. And yes, he did get fired. That's the way God's people are responding here because they don't want. They don't want what God is giving out. How shall we return? Now that's instructive for us. Sometimes people ask you questions. Maybe your kids, your adult kids, maybe some who are visiting, maybe people from outside the church will ask you questions. Why do you Christians do that? And a a good portion of them want to really know. They really do want to know. But there's a good portion of them that ask you those questions because they don't want to know. They they don't want what you're offering, what you're telling them. So they ask the question. It's a way of putting their hand out, which is exactly what's going on here. How shall we return? And so notice what Yahweh does. Notice what the Lord does. He plunges in right where it counts most for them and for us. He plunges into their bank accounts. Give change, he says. Actually, he says it this way. He accuses them of robbing him. Verse 9, the whole nation of you. And surprisingly, notice their response. How? So the Lord tells them point blank in your tithes and contributions, verse 8. Tithes and offerings. Now first off, my friends, I want you to see what God is doing here. God is making money a moral matter and a matter of morality. God is making money a moral matter and a matter of morality. Now, I'm sorry. I know that this is one of the sacred bulls of our country and of Western Christians, and trust me, it does make me hugely uncomfortable to talk about money in church. I don't like talking about it. But notice what God does. He takes money... He takes our revenue, he takes our income out of the category of untouchable, out of the category of the personal, out of the category of the private. And he declares that our monies are a moral matter and a matter of morality. In fact, our Lord Jesus, who is Yahweh in the flesh, does the exact same thing in our New Testament reading. When he warns us, take care and beware of covetousness for your life does not consist in the abundance of the things you possess and then he tells that story and he ends that story with so is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God takes money and puts it out as a moral matter and a matter of morality our money let me come at this in another way Just as every day of the week is God's day. Every day is a gift he gives you. You could say, actually, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday are all the Lord's day because they're his days. And yet, what does he do? He gives you, he gives us six days to go work, six days to go pursue our own passions, to go pursue our own pleasures. And then he asks... For one of those days to be set aside, set apart, to do something. To offer ourselves to him in that day in a very profound way, very pointed way, a very emphatic way. To offer ourselves to him in that day, but why? So that we will 
so that, um, so that we will draw close to him in a very profound and emphatic way one day a week. Well, why? So that, surprise, we can actually get a rest. Because what are you doing the other six days? Pursuing productivity? Anyone? Efficiency? Pursuing money-making? Pursuing your curriculum vitae, your resume, pursuing, 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 pursuing. No wonder you're tired when you come to church on Sunday morning. You're exhausted. And he says, all these days are mine. I made them all. I give them all to you. Go do those things. But one day, just one, I want you to offer it back to me. And as you offer it back to me, offer yourself to me so that I can give you rest set you free. There's gospel in that. Well, in the same way, God richly provides us with everything to enjoy. 1 Timothy 6, 17. Never a reason to feel ashamed if you have money. And all of you here have a lot more money than a lot of other people do. No reason to be ashamed. God provides all things richly to enjoy, for us to enjoy. And the God who provides for us all things richly to enjoy calls for a tithe, a tenth, to be given back in gratitude for his great grace. To be given back as we give back in gratitude as also a means of grace to us in that it aids us in keeping a check on our heart. Am I bowing the knee to the God of covetousness and tight-fistedness and miserliness and productivity and efficiency and building my own castles in the sky? Oh, here, let me give a tenth back to you, Lord. You will know, by the way, if you do tithe, you will know immediately. Your heart will tell you if you're actually bowing the knee to a different God pretty quickly. He has us give back so that it keeps our hearts in check, but also so that we can actually rest. So that we can actually rest. I don't have to have all this money. Thank God. I don't have to be worried about it all the time. Hallelujah! I can finally rest. Rest from the tight-fistedness and the grief. And to show how serious the Lord is here, notice that he does something here that he will not allow us to do in any other place that I can recall. This is the Lord who says, and you will not test the Lord your God. And Jesus even took those words on his, lip as he fa- his lips as he faced the devil. You shall not test, put the Lord your God to the test. All over the Old Testament and the New, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And so that tells you how deeply significant this is because he does something here he doesn't do anywhere else. He invites them and he invites us to put him to the test and see if I will not open the windows of heaven. That tells you this is pretty significant. Money is a moral matter and a matter of morality. Wow! I mean, the high and holy one who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, does something amazing in this statement. He stoops. He stoops like a daddy talking to his child and gets down on his knees and looks at his boy or his girl eyeball to eyeball. I just want to make sure you understand this, Junior. Or whoever, whatever the name is, right? 
He's stooping down, looking at eyeball to eyeball with us. He stoops to us on the topic of our treasury tithes and tithes, and he says, test me. Is it possible that this is the rationale behind the Apostle Paul bringing in the incarnation of our Lord Jesus, who is Yahweh in the flesh, when he was encouraging the Corinthian Christians to be lavish, lavish with their largesse? 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 are a fundraising letter, Wesley. They're a fundraising letter. He's got to raise funds for the church plan. And it's amazing because right in the heart of it is that promise you heard in the assurance of pardon. But you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. That though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor so that you through his poverty might become rich. Wow. But notice that God summons His people to give change. To give change of heart, to give change of head, to give change of whole life, yes. But also to give change, tithes and offerings. And all of those actually fit together. The one is often evidenced by the other. The one is often evidenced by the other. And sometimes doing the other helps to bring about the one. If heart and hand and whole life are really changed by the grace of God and by the, the gift of God and the Spirit of God, it will show up in an open-heartedness and an open-handedness. And sometimes when we feel like God is far, far away and we know that there's not been a lot of change in our lives, sometimes actually sacrificing what has got hold of us, our prosperity, our wealth, and saying, Lord, I give you this generously begins the process of us changing heart and hand and whole life. Money, my friends, is a moral matter and a matter of morality. And this all brings God to describe good change. And that's verse 11 and 12. And notice that what the Lord promises in verse 11 and 12, that as we give change, the change of life and the change of largesse, as we give change, he will bring about good change, change that is manifest and monetary, but as well, change that is missional. I, I, I used three adjectives there. I actually created an adjective to go along with the other two adjectives, okay? So it, there's change that's manifest and monetary, but change that is also missional. He gives good change. The good change will be manifest and monetary. There's the first part. Notice how he puts it in verse 11, I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil or your vine in the field uh, shall not fail to bear, says Yahweh. That's pretty manifest, especially if you live in an agrarian culture. And it's monetary. But now I want you to understand what our God never promises here. God never promises us, don't tell the deacons this, God never promises us a personal jet. God never promises us a $500,000 Bentley, or now maybe it's a $750,000 Bentley. God never promises us a mansion. God never promises us that we will win the lottery. But there is a way to talk about this. In general, God does want his people to succeed and prosper. I love the words of the Westminster Shorter Catechism as it is talking about the fifth commandment, honor your parents, 
so that your days may be long in the land which the Lord your God has given you. And as the shorter catechism comes to that last statement, so that your days may be long in the land which the Lord your God has given you, they call that the reason annexed to the fifth commandments. They're just basically following Paul's words. And they say this, the reason annexed to the fifth commandment is a promise of long life and prosperity. But then there's a parenthesis. As far as it shall serve for God's glory and their good. Long life does not always serve God's glory, nor does it often, all the time, serve our good. Does that make sense? As long as it will serve God's glory and their own good, to all such as keep this commandment. And so for the Lord here to say, give change and test me and I will bring about good change, both manifest and monetary. That's not health and wealth prosperity pablum. Where you pay God off and he gives you back plenty more. I mean, so that way, that's the only reason you give to him, so you can get more. That's the problem we've already got. That's what we've been exporting as Americans to several countries in Africa and other places called the prosperity gospel. And it is not Christian. It is pagan to the gills. And this is not prosperity, health, and wealth gospel stuff. In general, all things considered, and as long as it will serve for God's glory and our good. That's what God desires for us. Prosperity and long life. Okay. So it's manifest and monetary is what he promises. He'll give good change. Manifest and monetary. But then he says, also good change... It's missional. Now, I just, I, I literally did. I mean, I realize it's a popular word with some folks out there. I didn't put it out there for that reason. I was just trying to keep to adjectives, so I had to create a word that was an adjective. It's also missional. That, too, is God's good desire. Notice how he puts it in verse 12. Then all nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says Yahweh of hosts. Notice that language. All nations will call you blessed. And earlier he said, I will pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. And you, being good Bible readers, know that that's not just throwing out prosperity language and health and wealth language. That actually has gospel background to it. That actually has Bible background to it. That is saturated. That phrase, those phrases are saturated with God's world rescue operation promises. Genesis 12, he tells Abram, Abram, I want you to go leave the earth, the Chaldees, I want you to go to land, I'm going to send you because I'm going to prosper, I'm going to bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. And then in Genesis 22, verse, 6, uh, verse 18, again he says, and in your offspring." all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And then we find out when you get to Galatians, in the New Testament, Galatians 3.16, Paul tells us who that offspring is, by whom all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And it is Jesus Christ. And then he surprises us. At the very end of Galatians 3, he says, and if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. That's world rescue operation language. That's God rescuing the world through His Son, Jesus Christ, language. And He is putting it here. That's what I mean by missional. As God gives good change, it has this missional edge to it. 
it's not even an edge, it's actually, well, maybe it is an edge. It's a big machete cutting edge. <laughs> Secondly, I want you to notice that it will often take God prospering us to fund and foot the bill of his world rescue operation, the going out part. Hunter and Laura are not going to get to South Africa because they're going to hitchhike. I mean, y'all need to pick up what I'm putting down here. Wes is not going to plant this church in Yukon just because people like him. They do like him, by the way. He's going to take money. God often prospers us for the very purpose that his world rescue operation will grow and go. It's missional. And so often take God's prospering us to fund and foot the bill of his world rescue operation, but it will often take his aiding us and his growing us to offer those who are watching us incentive to take note. They will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight. In other words, as God continues to give us good change, it becomes then part of the bringing in. People look and go, wow, look at how these people are a blessed people. That they actually really believe what they say they believe, and they're involved in missions, and they're taking care of one another, and they're doing fine, but they're not dominated by their money. They're not dominated by their possessions. Wow! It becomes attractional, if you want to use that phrase, that term. It brings people in. And that's been part of God's plan, is all along plan. We read before the confession of sin. Hang in here with me for a minute. Come on. We read before the confession of sin from Deuteronomy chapter 4. Did you not hear what God said? As you keep my commandments, it'll make the nations around you go, Whoa, dude! You've got a good God! You guys got wisdom. Your God gave you wisdom. You hear the attractional aspect? It's always been God's plan. And so you hear it in 2 Corinthians 9 as Paul is still writing his fundraising letter. And he talks about how God prospers us as we, as we give him and he prospers us. It's always for this missional edge so that we can give more, but always so that the world, God's world rescue operation grows and attracts. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way. Do you hear it? Do you hear it? Okay, good, okay. The good change is manifest and monetary, but the good change is also missional. So let me tie this up. First off, there is no change. That's part of the message of Advent. The story about the stubborn bulldog and love of God is all over Advent. The Lord is coming and coming down. And where is He coming down into? He's coming down into our mess. And He's coming down into our misery. Why is He coming down into our mess and misery? He's diving deep into the muck of our condition to raise us up to God. 
and he never changes. I've loved you. I have not changed. I will not change. I think the way that John Owen puts it, and I've already quoted this to you before, but I think the way he puts it is beautiful. God loves life, grace, and holiness into us. He loves us into covenant, loves us into heaven. Thank God. There's no change. The next, because he loves us deeply and he loves us decisively, then his unchanging love in the flesh, Jesus, rescues us from our greatest enemies. Yes, the world, the flesh, and the devil. Yes, But most importantly, the greatest enemy. You've seen that greatest enemy recently. Did you shave this morning? Were you looking into something? Were you looking in a mirror? We are often our biggest enemies, sabotaging ourselves all the stinking time, rationalizing our addictions and our enslavements. We are our greatest enemies. And Jesus comes to rescue us from our greatest enemies. He wants us to give change, change of life and change of largesse. And he makes it possible because he gives himself. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, for your sakes he became poor so that you through his poverty might become rich. Finally, Dear friends, embrace the good change with just as much grace and love as he gives it with. The manifest and the monetary are for you to enjoy. Enjoy it. But also for you to enjoy giving away for the mission. I should be hearing Hunter Lore saying amen here right about now. So let me end with a possible prayer that you could use during this Advent. And this is the end of the sermon notes. And I just want you to look at it as I'm going to read through it. Lord, we give grateful. We give grateful for your greatness and your great-heartedness toward us. As we give grateful, bring good change that is manifest, monetary, and missional. And as long as it will serve for your glory and our good, may the returns on our labors and work of our hands be bountiful so that we may be even more open-handed for the gospel going out there and your goodness attracting others to come in here. Thank you for the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ who though he was rich became poor so that through his poverty we might become rich. Amen. So let's pray in earnest. Thank you so much, our Lord God, that you do not change. I have loved you. I do not change. Lord, may that soak our hearts and saturate us and change us now and forever. And always. In Jesus' name, amen.